Now, beginning with chapter 2 here of 1 Peter through chapter 4, I've labeled this section, Suffering and the Suffering of Christ. I probably should say, The Suffering of the Saints and the Suffering of Christ. That is, the suffering of God's children. Now, we see here in chapter 2, one of the accomplishments of the suffering of the saints. First, he mentions here in chapter 2, it produces separation. And we are going to see here now what real Bible separation is. Now, there's always a danger when we talk about separation or living for the Lord. There are two extreme viewpoints, and both of them I consider very much out of line with Scripture. One of them, it says that human nature is such that all it needs is just new direction. All it needs is just to be given a purpose. All it needs is just a little reformation. And in the estimation of these folk that take that position, there is nothing radically wrong with human nature. Therefore, you don't have to do much to it. Just make a little alteration here in human character and conduct. And when you've done that, why, you've gone a long ways. And then if you can just awaken the individual to the marvelous energies and his intellectual and moral nature, then he'll be able to go places. Now, that's one viewpoint. That's what it means to live the Christian life. Now, on the other hand, there are some today who think that the change when you're born again, that you have that which is supernatural, and I agree with that. But now, to live the Christian life just seems to mean that you just sit down and do nothing and that you're not involved in this at all, and that God's going to do all of this for you, and you can just sit on the sidelines and become a very pious individual. And some of them folk in that class sit on the sidelines today as pious as a puffed-up frog, and they never seem to really grow or develop are really become loving, full-orbed, normal Christians. Now, I think this passage that we're coming to here is going to make it very clear that you and I, through the new birth, and that's what he talked about the last time, born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Now, You have a new nature, and you're to live in that new nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have been brought into a loving relationship, which he had mentioned to us before. You remember he said, "...whom having not seen, ye love." Simon Peter saw him and loved him, and you and I haven't seen him, but the Holy Spirit can make him real to us and We can love him that way. You remember, I'm sure many of you remember when you were 
born again and how sweet and wonderful it was at that particular time. It was wonderful then, wasn't it? Paul said to the Corinthians, and they had become very carnal Christians, he said, I espouse you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That first love, that honeymoon love, and now it seemed to be gone. And that's what God had said to his people before the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah in the second chapter said, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. When they first came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, oh, you read that song there, the song of Moses that they sang there, praises to Jehovah, but wasn't long till they became complainers. God says, I remember that. Now, today, real separation rests upon the fact that you've been born again. You have a new nature. And now you're in love with Christ, and you want to please Him. And the great object, I think, before the heart of God at the present time is to have a people saved, not only from judgment and the lake of fire, but saved from the world. Saved not only for heaven by and by, but for the heart of Christ right now. The work of Christ on the cross, I think, has settled every question that sin is raised between God and our souls, and the future's bright with glory, the glory of God. And we've been brought into the value of that work of redemption. And we have now been born again. And no one can affect that. Satan can't touch that at all. But my friend, how are we doing down here today, this season of the year? What does Christ mean to you? Is all in the world Christmas going to mean to you just that there was a little baby born in Bethlehem? Or have you been born and become a child of God? Now he's going to open this section by talking about separation, what actually I think really that it is. And we're going to talk about another little baby, and that little baby is going to be you, and it's going to be me. Now, will you notice, wherefore, I'm reading now, chapter 2, verse 1, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that ye may grow by it. Now, this is a very important thing, you see. Now, here's something for you and me to do. There's certain things that we are to lay aside. And in fact, Paul in Ephesians talk about taking off an old garment and putting on a new garment. And in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 7 and 8, he says this, "...purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, 
neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, you know, the Israelite, he observed the Passover. And then there was that feast of unleavened bread. And he didn't come in and eat leavened bread. He didn't go on just living the same kind of life he lived before. He's feeding in a different place, a different kind of a bread now. And he's growing by that. Now, we're told when we come to Christ that we're to get rid of the old leaven that's in our life. That is, we'll never become perfect. You've always got that old nature. And you're to lay aside all malice. Now, what is malice? The best definition that I've ever found for it is it's congealed anger. It means to have an unforgiving spirit. Are you carrying today a chip on your shoulder relative to some person, and you carrying bitterness in your heart for them? Well, my friend, you can talk about how much you love Jesus. You can talk about how much you've been born again, but nobody around you is going to be able to distinguish that. If you're carrying malice, that is congealed anger in your heart. And then he speaks here about all guile. Now, guile means that that is a spirit of using cleverness to get even or really to make an impression with somebody. You remember Ananias and Sapphira was very good at doing that sort of thing. That old nature you see that you and I have is a nature that if we leave it in control and do not let the Spirit of God guide us, then that nature, as Dr. Lightfoot put it, he says, the vicious nature which is bent on doing harm to others. And Ananias and Sapphira, they're an example of that. They were clever. And they tried to put one over on the church, but they didn't put one over on the Spirit of God, you see. Now you're to desire, our translation says sincere milk, and I turn that to pure milk. And it means spiritual milk. Just as a hungry baby reaches for the bottle, a believer is to desire the Word of God. I remember when our little grandson was born, his father was over in Turkey at the time, and so his mother was at our home. And so we had him those first few months. And every now and then it was my task to give him his bottle. And I want to tell you that that little fella, he went in high gear when he saw that bottle, the pure milk, the sincere milk, when he saw that. He started moving his hands. He started moving his mouth. He started moving his feet. He, he just moved all over. He was reaching out for it with every part of his body, trying to get that. And I thought, my, at that time I was still preaching, and I thought, I said, my, I wish I had a congregation that reached out after the Word of God like that. That's the real test. And friends, you're never going to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And you're never going to develop as a Christian. Always be a little baby. And it's wonderful to be a baby at one time. 
And we must remember that a little baby and a full-grown man are both human beings, but they're at different stages of growth and different stages of development. And for that reason, we need to understand that the little one needs the milk. He wants to grow to become a man. How are you going to grow up as a Christian? Never apart from the Word of God. And that's the reason that I get letters from many pastors that tell me that they are wet nurses for a lot of little babes. And as one man said, I spend my time burping spiritual babes. The problem is these little babes should grow up. Now, they need to desire the pure milk of the Word that ye may grow by. Now, that pure milk of the Word means the total Word of God. It doesn't mean lifting out a little verse here and a little verse there and a little verse for comfort. They all have their place, of course. But we need the total Word of God to grow. Because, you see, you need to get all your vitamins. You just can't just stay on one diet all your life. It's nice to start off with milk. But the day comes when you like to have a nice porterhouse steak, maybe, and a good baked potato. And you might want some black-eyed peas on the side. And you get all of that in the Word of God, all the spiritual vitamins that you need. Now, verse 3, he says here, "...if so be..." and That looks as if there's a doubt. Actually, the word should be translated, "...since ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious." You see, at the moment of salvation, a child is born with an appetite for the Word of God. Just as a little baby born into this world immediately starts to eat. And you never have to teach them to eat. I remember this little fella, all you had to do was stick that bottle in his mouth, and he knew what to do. I don't remember ever giving him a lecture on how to drink the milk. He seemed to know all about that. And I don't know why today we have to have all of these different programs to try to get a bunch of spiritual babes to get into the Word of God. We need to get into the Word of God. Not some program, but just get into the Word of God and to begin to study the Word of God. Now, what then is real separation? Real separation now, and we need to be very careful about this, is separation from the works of the flesh. You see, we think it's separation from the world. Well, we're in the world. You can't help it. I drove evangelists around in Nashville, Tennessee, half of one night trying to find a restaurant that didn't serve beer. He couldn't eat. And finally, we did find one, and he got tomaine poison in eating in that place. I wouldn't have eaten any. And I told him, I said, I think if I were you, after that, I told him, I says, I'd go in a restaurant that serves good food and bad beer and not take the beer. You don't have to have it. You're in the world. But after all, separation doesn't mean that you don't go in a restaurant that doesn't serve liquor. That doesn't mean you're separated. How about malice? How about hypocrisies? How about envy? 
That's the thing we're to be separated from, and only the Spirit of God working in us. And friends, until you and I are willing to give that up, you and I will never grow as babes. Now he says, "...to whom coming as unto a living stone." Now, we don't come to a little babe in Bethlehem. We come as little babes to a living stone, disallowed indeed of man, but chosen of God and precious. Now, this is a very wonderful passage of Scripture that we've come to now. The living stone is Christ. And we need to recognize that back under in Matthew, when the Lord Jesus Christ said to Simon Peter after his confession, on this rock I will build my church, Simon Peter makes it very clear here that the living stone is not Simon Peter, but the living stone is Christ. And that is the one and the thing that is, by the way, all important. Now, there are two scriptures I'd like to call your attention to in this connection. The first one is found in Matthew 21, verses 42 down to 44. I'm going to read that now. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus saith unto them, and he's speaking now to his apostles, did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, he's quoting, of course, from the psalm when he said that. Now, drop down to verse 44. And speaking now of himself, he says that, "...and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder." Now, today, he is that stone, that foundation stone. Paul said, "...no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Now, you get on that foundation, and when you get on that foundation, that's salvation, my beloved. And if you fall on that stone, you come as a sinner, broken, if you please. Now, if you reject him, you're not through with the stone, because Daniel says there was a stone cut out without hand that's coming to this earth to smite this earth. And that is the stone of judgment. Christ is also the stone of judgment. What a picture that we have here given of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says something else that's wonderful. Verse 5, Ye also as living stones. How are we living stones? Been born again. Not a corruptible seed, incorruptible, the Word of God, that liveth and abideth forever. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. Now, the Lord Jesus said to Simon Peter, you're going to be a little stone. But on this foundation stone, which is Christ, I'll build my church. And Simon Peter was one of the little stones, and you're one of the little stones. And I'm one of the little stones that are built into this. And he says, a holy priesthood. That is, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now, will you notice here, ye are an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You offer up praise to God. Your offering is a spiritual sacrifice, friend. I don't know why people think money can be spiritual. It's owing to how you use it. And then you can offer yourself to him. These are spiritual sacrifices we offer to God. Now, when you're born again, a child of God, you're a stone that's put into this building of God, and that is the thing that Paul talked about over in Ephesians, the second chapter, verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So that what is happening today is that God is building a temple. It's a living temple. And he takes those of us that are sinners that come to him. And just as he put it in Matthew, he says, if you fall on this stone, why, you're going to be saved. But if this stone falls on you, it'll grind you to powder. Now, when you fall on him, it's when you come in your sin, just as you are, and accept him as Savior. And then you're put on that foundation, which Paul says there's no other foundation. But you can build on it, of course, but that foundation is there. And we become a living stone on that foundation. Now he says, verse 6, "...wherefore also it's contained in the Scripture." Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 28:16. I think probably I ought to go back and pick up that quotation in Isaiah. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. This is the stone that Christ is. And I think that's made very clear from the Word of God. Now he goes on to say in verse 7, "...unto you therefore who believe he is precious." And that could be changed a little. A better translation would be, for you therefore which believe is the preciousness. It's the preciousness of Christ. This great big rugged fisherman Simon Peter's the one that uses this woman's word, precious. My, it's a word that belongs in their vocabulary, but Simon Peter, when he speaks of Christ or of his blood or any part about him, it's precious. Unto you therefore who believe he's precious. But unto them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, to disallow here means reject, that stone has become the same, has become the headstone of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, This is a very important passage of Scripture. It makes it very clear that Christ is either a stepping stone for you or he's a stumbling stone. He is presented in the Word of God 
and he becomes a stumbling stone to many. What I'm trying to say is this, the tragedy of the hour is to celebrate the birth of a little baby and to reject the purpose of that little baby's coming into the world to die on a cross in order that you might be saved. Now, there's a tradition on which this passage of Scripture and the passage actually that you will find back in the Psalms relative to him. In Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, "...the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner." There's a tradition that when the temple was building in Jerusalem, remember Hiram, king of Tyre, his men, they were hewing out the stones and then sending them down to Jerusalem. And a very large, fine-looking stone came up, but they couldn't fit it in anywhere, so they just put it aside. And then the other stones came up, and they fitted them into place. And remember, it was without a sound of a hammer. And these stones all were fitted into place. And then when they got it all built, why, they sent word down. They said, send up the cornerstone. They had a place for it there, but no stone. And in the meantime, that stone, they couldn't find a place for it. They just pushed it off the brow of the hill and forgot about it. And then they said, why, we sent that stone up to you a long time ago. And then they thought, well, that's the stone we pushed off the side. So they had to go down and with a great deal of effort, get the stone back up to the top of the hill, and they fitted right into place. And it's on that tradition, apparently, that this Scripture is built, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. And certainly it's a picture of Christ coming into the world. Not only was he rejected by his own people, he came unto his own, his own received him not. But you and I live today in a Christ-rejecting world. Now, I don't know about your town, but I know in my town we celebrate Christmas, but we've rejected Jesus Christ. And to me, that's just about as hypocritical as anything possibly can be, is to reject the one, and yet you're supposed to be celebrating his birthday. Now, he's either to you today, he's a stepping stone, is a stumbling stone. Now we come to this very wonderful passage of Scripture in verse 9 that we have here. It reveals that a Christian is to live a life that's commensurate with his position in Christ. And until we live that life, we're not experiencing normal Christian living. Now, he says here several wonderful things about us. And these are gifts for you. And I'd just like to call your attention to the fact that God now has these gifts for you today, Christian friend. And let me read verse 9. And there are quite a few of them here for you. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we are told here several things. First, a chosen generation. Second, a royal priesthood. 
Third, a holy nation. And fourth, a people of his own, not a peculiar people. God's people are not supposed to be oddballs or crackpots. Some people seem to think that is what peculiar means. But it means, as the translation is given here in the New Schofield Reference Bible, a people of his own. Now, let's look at these rather briefly, but they're very important for us today. He says here that you are, first of all, a chosen generation. That is, an elect race. Now, back in the Old Testament, God chose Israel as his people. And you have in the Scripture two elect groups of people. The nation Israel is called an elect nation. And the church is called an elect nation, also an elect people. And there are these two groups. Now, what Peter is saying to his own people, and as we've said, this is written to the diaspora, those Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond. He says, instead of being scattered now, and you certainly don't look like a chosen generation, an elect race now, but you have come now to Christ. And you are a chosen generation. You're an elect nation, just as the children of Abraham was. You remember God chose a man and he made a nation. And that nation failed. And the thing that's important is that now there has been given to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And today we're to give out the gospel because the church is the chosen. Now, this honor is conferred upon believers, and God has stamped out for you today a very wonderful medal like that of Israel, and on it is you are an elect race. You're a chosen generation. Now, there's a vain attempt being made today to identify certain peoples of this earth with the ten lost tribes. Well, the gypsies have been identified as that. The Mormons have, the Adventists, the British Israel group, and all that sort of thing. May I say to you, if you could prove that England and America, the ten lost tribes, what have you proven? God has set aside the nation Israel temporarily. And today God's doing a new thing. And out of every tongue and nation and people, God is calling out an elect race, a chosen generation from both Jew and Gentile, and they are brought into a new relationship to God in the church. And you and I have come to him, but he says he's chosen us. And I like that. Remember hearing the story about two little children, two little urchins, they were brother and sister from the slums of New York. They got up where... There was Macy's department store, and they were looking in the window at the gifts that were there that they could never have. But they were playing a game, and one of them says, I choose this one, I choose that, I choose that toy, I choose that doll, and I don't know about you, I choose Jesus. And that's what you say today, that's fine. But the most wonderful thing about it is Jesus chose me, and he chose you. I think one of the most wonderful things he said about his apostles, he says, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. That's wonderful, friends. 
And I do not mean to be irreverent, but if he chose me, he's responsible. <laughs> the responsibility is his. I belong to him. Unto you, therefore, which believe he's precious. How wonderful it is to have him today and to know that he has chosen us. Now, we're told that we're a royal priesthood. Now, what does he mean by royal priesthood? Well, back in the Old Testament, God, first of all, chose the entire nation of Israel to be priests. And I believe in the millennium, they're going to be priests here on this earth, the whole nation. But they sinned, and then God chose one tribe out of that nation. There is no priesthood today on this earth that God recognizes except one. There is a priesthood, and every believer is a priest. And I gave a message some time ago on our Sunday program, and my subject was, You are a Catholic priest, and I'm a Catholic priest. Catholic means general, of course. And every believer is a priest, therefore. And as priests, we have access to God. He tells us here, and it's Simon Peter. He told me, I'm a member of a royal priesthood. I'm a child of the king. What a wonderful thing it is. I now belong to Christ. And what a wonderful gift that is. We have access to God. We can come today into the Holy of Holies. And we'll read a little later on in this epistle, "...for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous." And he hears their prayers. And today, the door is wide open to give the Word of God out. And I hope you're involved in a ministry somehow or another of getting the Word of God out today. And then the third thing here, he says, you are a holy nation. Now, Israel never was a holy nation in conduct. And the same can be said of the church. Never been holy in conduct. Israel's failure is glaring. The church's failure is appalling. But we're holy in our relationship with him. He's been made unto us righteousness, and Christ is our righteousness. And if you have any standing before God, it's not in you, it's in Christ. And I can't think of anything more wonderful than that, that today I stand complete in him and how wonderful it is to be a member of a holy nation. And this is a new nation that is in the world today. And then he mentions the fact here about you're a peculiar people, or, as we read, people of his own. And that is something that I think is rather important. It's really a people for acquisition, a people for God's own possession. We belong to him. And not only, therefore, is there a new nation in the world, but there is a peculiar people. That is, a people that belong to him. And I don't know why that it seems to me like this is something a great many people are afraid of. It doesn't mean that we have to be peculiar in conduct or act strangely, but we belong to him his very own people, and it's something that is his own. It's like a boy that goes out and gets a job, and he makes money for the first time, and, and his dad's been giving him an allowance, but now 
The money belongs to him. This is something he worked for, and it's his very own. Well, Christ's work, his work of redemption, he shed his blood, as we've seen in this epistle. And now he has a people for his own. And you remember that he prayed for those yonder in that great high priestly prayer of his in John 17. He says, that the Father gave them me, and every one that comes to me, I'll not cast out. How wonderful it is. And God calls his own, and he calls you today, my friend. He calls every race today. Doesn't make any difference what race you belong to. You've been called to become a very special, a very wonderful, a chosen generation and a royal priesthood, not to wear robes and recite a ritual, but a priesthood that has access to God and belong to a new nation, not Germany or England or Japan or even the United States, but you belong to that great company of believers out of every nation, a people, happy as that people whose God is the Lord. And we are the people and the sheep of thy pasture, The Lord is round about his people. And for the transgression of my people, he said, and sanctify the people with his blood. How wonderful, how wonderful it is to have a wonderful high priest that today is for us. And these are the wonderful positions he's given. Now he says, who in time past were not a people. We didn't belong to God. We were far from him, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And friends, there's one gift that you don't want to miss. And the title of that gift, the name written on the box, is mercy. And it's a big box. God, he's rich in mercy and abundant mercy. And if you need any today, you can go to him And he's merciful. He wants to save you. He wants to help you. He wants to lift you up. How wonderful it is. Now, friends, we come to verse 11 today. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, this is the great section on Christian separation, what it really is. And it's actually not so much restraining yourself from doing certain things as it is positive of doing certain things. And that's what we're going to see as we move on now. And worldliness, actually, today, is doing the things of the flesh, And true separation is a separation from the flesh. Someone has put it like this. The flesh is a good servant, but a bad master. And that is something that the child of God should remember. And not only is he to restrain from that because he's going to come into judgment someday, but actually for the very fact that these things will destroy his testimony as far as the world is concerned. This is something that 
is very important for believers. Paul had said to the Gentiles and Ephesians practically the same thing. And now Peter says to his people, the diaspora, the Jews scattered abroad, he says, in time past, you were not a people. That is, they had rejected God and God had rejected them. And now God's doing something new, but you're now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's verse 10, by the way. Now, as we move on here, verse 12, "...having your behavior honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation." Now, this is what we mean when we say that true separation today is not some little pious position that you assume and that you refrain from doing certain worldly things. Believers who are in the business world, and most of us today have contact with the business world, we are to show forth the praises of God by honesty. And that is a witness to the world. Now, 13, he says, "...submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well." Now, at this time, Nero was just coming to the throne in Rome. He was the new emperor. And yet, he says here that you're to obey those that are the supreme ruler, and you're to obey the ordinances of man. The Roman Empire boasted itself that it gave justice to man. But, of course, it's been like every other government, including our own. We talk today about that they Little man, he has a fair chance. Well, he doesn't. I mean, let's face up to it. If you have money enough to buy a lawyer that is smart enough to evade the law, you can pretty much evade it. It's the poor man today that's having the problem with the law, you see. But what about the believer today? Well, we are to obey the law. Rome intended their law to be just. It was not. They crucified Christ, you must remember. They are the ones that persecuted the early Christians. And they boasted loudly about justice. And today we hear so much about the sacred cow, the freedom of the press, very little about freedom of religion. But my friend, today religion is very politely being suppressed. When I say religion, I mean the preaching of the Word of God. Now, what are we to do? Rebel against the government? No. We are to obey. We are to submit ourselves. Now, he says, verse 15, "...for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, so that the life that you live..." And when you submit to governments and those in authority, again, you are revealing the praises of God in your life. You may not want to take that traffic ticket. I've never taken one joyfully so far. Always pled my innocence, and sometimes there was some question about that. 
but we are to be obedient unto the law. And for that reason, we are giving a testimony. Now, will you notice here, he's going to talk here in verse 16 and 17 about our relationships to others. Now, notice this, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Now, you and I today have a liberty in Christ that the man outside does not really have. There's a marvelous liberty in Christ. But what about the man on the outside? Now, I personally believe that I can go places and I can see things that the average person cannot. I really mean that. I don't think I would be hurt by it at all. But you see, I don't want to use it as a cloak to hurt somebody else. I'd be malicious if I did something like that. We must remember, we are free, yet we are the servants of God. Now, listen to this. Honor all men. We are to respect other human beings. A Christian should remember that. Love the brotherhood. Now, we are to respect and honor all men. Not told to love them. Some of them are just too unlovely. But we're to love the brotherhood. And what's the brotherhood? Of believers and fear God. And we should reveal that in our lives and honor the king. Now, I don't care who's president. And I speak very frankly here. I can truthfully say that I have never voted for a president that I really wanted. I was always voting against the other fellow. But even when the other fellow got in, and they did most of the time, why, I must confess that I've never known a president, frankly, that I felt was really capable and a man of ability. Now, I know you Democrats are going to get after me, and you Republicans are going to get after me, but I don't mind that. I'm not discussing politics. What I'm trying to say is this, regardless of who's president, And regardless of his maybe inability, he should be honored because of the office that he has. And I'm not impressed by these Scripture-spouting pious individuals who attack the President of the United States, regardless of who he is. And we've had some, well, we haven't had the best, but the office is a marvelous office. Now, will you notice, verse 18... Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the perverse. Now, he's saying here that if you have a boss that's a Christian and you and him have fellowship, I have quite a few letters from men who are in business, and I get letters from their employees of how wonderful it is to work for a Christian. But what about that godless fellow you're working for? Well, again, you should be subject to him if you're going to work for him. And long as he's asking you to do that which is legitimate, that which is right, why, you're to be subject to him. And this word subject, and we're going to come to it in the next chapter in another connection, it has in it a freedom of choice. It's more like subject yourself. You do this voluntarily, not because you 
feel like that he's a great individual, but you're doing it for your testimony for Christ. Now, verse 19, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye are buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? That is, if you are having problems and difficulties because you played the fool. And businessman said to me, he says, I played the fool. He played the stock market, to tell the truth, and he lost all of his capital. He went bankrupt. And he was suffering for his own faults. He says, But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You know, a great many people, when they make a fool of themselves, they become very humble all of a sudden. God knows that that's not honest. The Lord knows your heart. But if you have done the best you can and trouble has come to you and you take it patiently, God recognizes that. Now, verse 21. Peter doesn't get very far without he tells you about the Lord Jesus again. And here we have the sufferings of Christ. And they are an incentive to the believer today. And fact of the matter is, they are an example. And that's exactly what Simon Peter says. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, the Lord Jesus, you have to divide his sufferings, sufferings which he suffered as a human being down here when he became a man and suffering for righteousness' sake, and then his suffering for the sin of the world. Now, when he suffered for the sin of the world, that's no example to us today. That is our redemption. That's what we accept and believe. But when he walked down here, here he was down here 30 years, absolutely unknown. I have a notion, no one but those in his neighborhood, Nazareth, knew anything about him. Then at 30, he began to move out. Well, he suffered, I'm sure, in Nazareth. I think the psalmist makes that clear. Then he suffered when he began his ministry, standing for righteousness' sake. Well, you and I are going to suffer. And he left us an example in that connection. But notice... Verse 23, "...who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously." He let the Lord settle the account. You know, Paul said in Romans, he says, "...venge not yourself, my beloved. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord." Let God handle those accounts. And he'll handle them, by the way. Now, he says here, his suffering now for the sins of the world, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, he's no example to us here. You and I can't suffer for our own sins, let alone the sins of the world. But he now is talking about redemption. You say, how do you know? Well, let's keep reading here in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, that was our condition, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Now, healed of what? And I've noticed that the 
faith healers never use this verse, and rightly so, because by whose stripes you're healed, it's evident here what he's talking about. He says, we were dead in sins. We were absolutely dead. And we should live now under righteousness by whose stripes we're healed. Healed of what? Of sin, friends. He's the great healer. I'll agree with that. But the great healer heals of sin. And no human physician can handle that problem. Now he says, "...for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls." Now the suffering of Christ is actually the theme of this last of this chapter, as you can see. He suffered vicariously to set us an example. And he also suffered for our sins. He suffered a vicarious, substitutionary death for our sins. By whose stripes you're healed. Now, that's a quotation from Isaiah 53, and it reveals that Isaiah is not speaking primarily of physical healing, but that which is more important and more profound, healing from sin. Now, humanity here, as he closes this, both lost and saved, they're called sheep. Will you notice that? For ye were sheep going astray, you see. All we like sheep have gone astray, all of us. Everyone is turned to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we come to chapter 3, and here we find out that suffering also produces conduct. We saw that it produces separation. Now it produces conduct, the conduct of believers. Now, that conduct is manifested in two different places for the believer. And it's his conduct in the home and his conduct in the church. In the first seven verses, why we have the conduct in the home. And verse 1 actually ties us right back into chapter 2, where we were talking about separation there, and separation and conduct are blended and molded together here. Because he opens this chapter this way, in the same manner, or likewise, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the behavior of the wives. Now, we had back in Ephesians the same theme of the position of the woman or the wife in the home. But there it was a Christian home, not only a Christian home, but where they were spirit-filled believers. Because, you see, this entire section back in the fifth of Ephesians began with, be filled with the Spirit. Then what are you to do? Well, one of the things is, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, here the husband is to love the wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Now, you're talking here about a Christian home in which the wife and the husband are both believers and they're spirit-filled believers. And now the relationship is one on the part of the man that he loves his wife, willing to die for her. Now, for the sake of order in any place, there must be leadership, there must be headship. And that has been given to the husband. Now, when the wife is told to submit here, it's not like the obedience of a child. A great many men think that when they get married, the wife becomes sort of their first child. She's to obey him like a child is to obey. And may I say that's not true at all. And as we suggested before, submission actually has to do with that which is voluntary. Submit yourself. This man loves you. You are to submit to him. But the better word, and I like it better because it means more, respond to this man. If he comes to you, he's a Christian husband, puts his arms around you and says, I love you. I love you more than anything else. Well, there's nothing wrong with the wife looking up and saying, I love you. Now, suppose, though, that the wife is married to a man that's not a Christian. To begin with, she shouldn't have married him if that was the case. Any woman or any man's in trouble that marries a non-Christian. The Scripture says an ox and an ass are never to be yoked together. And there are a lot of them yoked together today. Now, I do not think that the unsaved can get any farther than the sex relationship. I believe that two believers can make sex the most precious, most beautiful, most wonderful thing that there is in this world today. And I think they're the only ones that really can enjoy the physical relationship. I've counseled a great many young people that I've married, actually several hundred couples down through the years. I never majored in trying to marry as many as I could. I, very frankly, always did it with fear and trembling. I always counsel them along this way, and I mention it very briefly to you today, that marriage is made on three different planes. There is the physical plane, and that's important. That's the thing we just mentioned that the world talks about today, sex. And it's a wonderful thing to have a wonderful wife and to be able to put your arms around her and to love her. There's no question but what that's a wonderful thing. The thing that I did when I got married, my wife felt like she was not cut out to be a preacher's wife. She was disturbed by it because she'd brought up in a little town in Texas and she'd seen how the preacher's wife was treated there. So I took her over to talk to Dr. Schaefer one day. And I told Dr. Schaefer what her feeling was. And Dr. Schaefer, I never shall forget, said this, and she's never forgotten it. He says, you know, I am out on conferences a great deal. And when I come home, he said, I'm not looking for an assistant pastor. I'm not looking for an organist. And I'm not looking for a soloist. And I'm not looking for the president of the Missionary Society. 
says, I want a woman there to meet me who's my wife, that I can put my arms around her and love her. May I say to you, that answered the question that was in my wife's mind, by the way. And I think that's an important relationship. Now, the second is a mental or psychological relationship. And I think it's important today. It's nice when the husband and wife enjoy doing the same thing. I've met many that are like that. We had on our tour to Bible lands a very wonderful couple. They were up in years. When I say up in years, they were in their 50s. And they would get up early in the morning, take a hike. At night, they would walk together. They would go to certain things that even the tour didn't go to because they did things together. And it's wonderful to have that relationship. And the thing that makes Maggie and Jiggs in the funny paper so funny is that Jiggs wants to go to Denny Moore's where they have corned beef and cabbage and beer, and she wants to go to the opera where they have champagne. Their interests and their appetites are altogether different. And that, of course, is not healthy. The fact that husbands and wives don't have the same relations explains all these lodges and clubs today where men can go and now, of course, where women can go. Go. It's to get away from the other and to do what you want to do. Then the third level is the spiritual level. And that is when two of them are believers. When problems come and trouble comes, sorrow comes and suffering comes, they are able to kneel down together and they're able to come to God together in prayer and they're able to meet around the Word of God together. And you can break these other ties. A threefold cord, we're told in Scripture, is not easily broken. When you have all three, you have a wonderful marriage. But the first two can break. And if the third one will hold, the marriage will hold. But when the third one is broken with the others, the marriage has gone down the tube, friends. I have to admit that there's very little hope for a marriage like that. Now, this is a relationship where apparently a wife got converted after they were married because the Scripture forbids marriage of a believer and an unbeliever. I think it's a big mistake. And as one little girl came to me, she said, Dr. McGee, he's not a believer, but I'm going to win him for the Lord. Well, I said, have you won him yet? She said, no, he won't even come with me to church yet. I said, look, little girl, your greatest influence with that young man is right now. The day you get married, your influence to win him for the Lord goes down quite a bit. You'll never be able to preach to him again. You're going to be living with him, and he's going to be watching you from then on. So if you can't get him to church now, you're in trouble. And she didn't like what I said. In fact, she went and got another preacher to perform the ceremony because I wouldn't perform it. I do not marry, uh, never did marry, knowingly a saved and an unsaved person. I think it's wrong, entirely wrong. She got somebody else. And then she came in two years weeping and telling me that wanted to talk to me. She'd gotten a divorce from him. Well, it was headed that direction before it even started. Now, here you have, though, that 
unfortunate relationship where you have a saved wife and an unsaved husband. What is to be after she's converted now? Is she to change and become a sort of a female preacher in the home to present the gospel to him and to lecture to him? No, she's to continue on in the same position of being in subjection. Now, the word here, to be in subjection, means submitting yourselves. And friends, this is a voluntary step, and it's not a command. And obviously, it refers now to an unsaved husband. She is to continue on in this relation of voluntarily being in subjection. Let him continue to be the head of the house. But wait just a minute. Suppose that he wants her to go with him to the nightclub and drink liquor, cocktail. Is she to do that? And I'm sure that even these most rabid folk today that say that she should obey her husband would agree that she shouldn't do this. At least I hope they wouldn't go that far. Well, may I say to you that there are those, though, that have said that. We had a lady when I was in downtown Los Angeles. They were not members of the church. She attended the church. Her husband was unsaved. And some evangelist that she had heard told her that she was to obey her husband because he wanted her to go with him to the nightclub. And apparently, it was a sort of a burlesque. It offended her sensibilities. And she was under awful conviction about it. In fact, the matter is, she'd come to the place where a doctor told her that she'd have to enter an institution for psychopathic treatment because of the fact she could not go on under that type of pressure. And she felt like she had to because this evangelist talked that way to her. Well, she heard me on the radio, and believe me, I have a little different idea about it. I don't believe Simon Peter intended for her to do that. And I talked with her, and I said that you were to continue on after your conversion to try to win him to be subject to him. But that doesn't mean, suppose that he wanted you to go out and commit a robbery. Were you to join him in that, drive the car for him? Well, she said she was sure that the evangelist wouldn't want her to go that far. Well, I don't know but what he would, the way that some of them talk today. May I say to you that this is something voluntary. She's doing this to try to win an unsaved man. Now, she's got to be very careful. She's living with it, and her preaching's not going to do a bit of good. He may now, without the word, be won by the behavior of the wives. She is to preach a wordless sermon by her life that she lives before him. And that hasn't anything in the world to do with submission to him. Verse 2 now, "...while they behold your chaste conduct coupled with fear, while they recognize that you now have changed and you want to live a pure life for God and live for Him. You don't want to indulge in the things of the world. And therefore, that's the testimony that you can give. I had another lady that came to me when I was pastor, and she says, Dr. McGee, I bring my husband here every Sunday. And she was the kind of woman that could bring her husband. She was a dominant personality. 
She says, you know, he's not saved, and I think every Sunday he'll put up his hand when he doesn't. Last Monday morning, I sat at the breakfast table just weeping, telling him, oh, how I wish he'd accept Christ. And then when he comes home from work at dinner that night, she says, you know, I just sit there and weep and beg him to accept Christ. And I got to thinking about that afterward. How would you like to have dinner with a weeping woman every evening and breakfast every morning with one? I wouldn't care for it myself, even as a Christian. And I'm sure you wouldn't want that. So I called her up and I said, look, for a period of now a year's moratorium, why not just not talk to him about the Lord at all? Oh, she says, you mean I'm not the witness? I said, I didn't say that. I said that Peter says that when you can't win them with the Word, then start preaching a wordless sermon. How about your lie? What kind of life are you living before it? Well, I want to tell you that put her back on her heels, because she wasn't living that kind of life. But she agreed. She did want to win him. She was a wonderful woman in many ways. And in six months' time, one Sunday morning, when I asked for hands to be raised, I was amazed myself. He put up his hand. The wordless sermon had won, my friend. And I believe that that's exactly what Simon Peter's talking about here. Now he says something else. Verse 3, "...whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of braiding the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel." Now, this is something I think that's very important, and you ought not to miss it at all. It is this, that... In the Roman Empire, great emphasis was put upon the way women arranged their hair. If you've seen any pictures that come from that period, you know that the women loaded their heads down with all kinds of hair. It wouldn't be their own, be somebody else's, but they'd have it really built up and they'd wear jewelry in it. And we have today very much that same type of thing. Now, the thing that he's saying here, and hear me carefully, if you cannot win the man you're going to marry who's unsaved, before you marry, by sex appeal, you will never win him by sex appeal afterward. Now, you can put on a gallon of joy perfume, and you can wear the thinnest negligee that there is. And I'll tell you, young lady, you won't win him for the Lord. That's exactly what Simon Peter is saying. But a Christian woman is to dress, I think, in style. I used to tell the kids at the Bible Institute, the girls down there, they, somebody would give them the notion that you're never to use any makeup and you go around looking sloppy. And I told them that we all ought to look the best we can with what we've got to work with though some of us don't have much to work with. But we ought to look the best we can. And I said, some of you would look a little bit better if you'd put on just a little makeup because you look like you came out of the morgue. And that's not attractive. And I don't care whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, my friend. But let's understand one thing. You can't win an unsaved man by sex appeal. Now... Will you notice the next, verse 4, "...but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price." 
Now, you are to have on an ornament, but it's to be on the inside. It's to be a marvelous, wonderful person. Have you ever stopped to think that in the little book of Ruth, and I majored in that book and I love it, and you remember when Boaz went in the field and he saw that girl, and she was beautiful, let me tell you, that maid of Moab, Ruth, and he saw her and he fell in love with her. But did you notice something else? That he had heard of her character. That she had a marvelous, wonderful character. And believe me, he fell in love with her. And today, Avon products, very helpful. And other products are very good. Helen Rubinstein does pretty good. I see nothing wrong in using anything will make you look better, my friend. All of us want to look the best we possibly can. But we need today more inward adornment. And that's the thing that is important. Yes, it's nice to look well on the outside. You remember, be not the first by whom the new is tried, nor the last to lay the old aside. Be in style. Dress up in a way that's becoming. But don't use that as the means of trying to win somebody to the Lord. Now, will you notice, we move on down here. For after this manner, this is verse 5, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands. Now, you'll find that true of, for instance, Sarah. And I've already mentioned Ruth. My, She's in the line that led to Christ, you know. And then there was not only Sarah, but there was Rachel. And it says she was beautiful. And old Jacob fell in love with her. She's the one bright spot in that man's life. And it was a pretty dark life, by the way. And holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Now, Sarah was a beautiful woman. Several kings wanted her as a wife, by the way. And Abraham had a great problem in that connection. But she called him my Lord. She looked up to Abraham. And it's wonderful when a wife has a husband she can look up to. Verse 6, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any terror. Now, in like manner. Now, what about the husbands? In like manner, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, it would seem to me that the wife here is a Christian and the husband is a Christian when he gives instructions to the husband. But I take it it would be applicable either way. He's to treat her as the weaker vessel, and he's to give honor to her because of that. You see, because she is a weaker vessel, and this women's lib today, I don't think it's going to last very long. I think a woman wants to be a woman just as a man wants to be a man. And because she's the weaker vessel, she's to be treated with honor. The man is to give first place to her. She gets in the car first. He holds the door, that is, before they're married. And then when they go into a place, 
Why, she goes first. He walks on the sidewalk on the outside. Why? For her protection, you see. He's to treat her with honor. And when a woman loses her place, may I say to you, she doesn't go up. She goes down. She falls down. And when she takes her place, she can be treated with honor and given her rightful position. And so the husband is to treat her like that. And I think every husband ought to treat his wife with something special, by the way. She's something special, and that's the way she should be treated. And then he says that your prayers be not hindered. One of the things today that will ruin your family altar, and there's no use praying together, my friend, if you're not getting along, if you're fighting like cats and dogs, well, God just doesn't hear cats and dogs. It's when you're in agreement. Now we go on and read verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Now, here we see the conduct in the church. We've moved out of the family, and they're to be like-minded. Believers are sympathetic, tender-hearted, courteous which means they're to be humble-minded, not trying to lord it over someone. And then verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that ye are called to this, that ye should inherit a blessing. Now, if you want the golden rule, here it is. Here is turning the other cheek. And a believer is to do that in the church of other believers. That will break down all of the little cliques today, and it will stop all this church fighting if we take this position and remember that we are representing the Lord. Verse 10, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. That is, don't be deceptive. Now, all of us want to live. Unfortunately, there are a lot of believers today that are not enjoying life. They're not living it to its full. They're not getting all out of it. A young medical student in Nashville came to me. He was the president of my young people's work there and a very fine friend. I wasn't too much older than he was in those days. And he said to me one day, he says, You know, Vernon, I want life to be like an orange to me that I can squeeze every drop of juice out of it, and I can live for God. Well, that's what this verse means. For he that will love life. Do you want to really live, friends? Well, here's a good formula. Here's the key to it. If you go around in your life and you're constantly speaking evil of someone, if you are speaking guile, deception, not telling the truth, and then verse 11, he says, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And you see that a child of God is not to sit back and act pious. That's not the way. Let's live it up, friends. But let's not live it up by indulging in gossip and evil. Let's live it up by pursuing that which ministers to peace and let's live today for God. How important that is. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. 
but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, here is an amazing passage of Scripture, and I'd like for you to note, first of all, that the thing that Peter's doing is actually, he's quoting a psalm here. He's quoting Psalm 34. And I think probably I ought to turn back to Psalm 34 and read verse 15 and 16 to you. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now, that's a strong statement, as you can see, as it is made there. And this is something that the Word of God has emphasized a great deal. Over in Ecclesiastes 2.17, here is something that goes right along with this. God has guaranteed to hear the prayers of those who are his own. He is not guaranteed to hear the prayers of those that are not his own. Now, the only prayer that a sinner can pray is, Lord, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I want you to accept me as a sinner in him. And that's a prayer that God will hear and God will answer. But this idea that an old reprobate can live any kind of a life, and then the movies and the novels have it, the old reprobate comes home and his little girl is sick in the hospital, and he goes and gets down on his knees and calls upon God to raise her up. And how marvelous and sentimental that is. May I say to you, and I say it very plain, that's nonsense. And that's absolutely unscriptural. Now, the thing that's important to note is, let that old reprobate get right with God. Then God will hear and answer prayer. This idea today that you can call on God under any circumstances and doesn't make any difference who you are. My friend, he has not promised to hear the prayer of those that are not his. And I know that's strong language. And if you really want to live life in Ecclesiastes 2.17, here's a man that tried everything, and he lived like a reprobate, and he says, Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all its vanity and vexation of spirit. How many men and women today living for the things of the world involved in it all of a sudden wake up and find out it's not worth it, that life's monotonous, life's not worth it, no wonder they put a gun to their brain and blow out their brain. No wonder they jump out of a 13-story building. No wonder today that they take an overdose of sleeping pills. My friend, may I say, not until you come in a right relationship with God. That means that we're living on a pretty high plane, does it not? Will you listen now? And who is he? That will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good. I guess that that means God gives you an armor that nobody can touch you at all. Now, listen to this. Verse 14 now. And if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now, suffering for the right should bring joy to the child of God. If you are taking a stand for the right and not made yourself obnoxious and 
some Christians do that, and then they think they're standing for the Lord. But if we have just taken a quiet stand for the right and for God in the world today, we ought to rejoice if we suffer for that, you see. And by the way, we repeat it again, you're not going to escape suffering in this world. Someone sent me this little clipping they took out of a church bulletin somewhere. It says, Jesus often spoke of Christianity as a banquet, but never as a picnic. And how true that is. He never said that you're going to have it easy down here. Now, verse 15, and this is a verse, and I wish that I could elucidate it, that I could exegete it in a way that it would bless your heart. I'll do my best. Verse 15, "...but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear." And that means that you ought to know a little something about the Bible. The tragedy of the hour is that here's a man or a woman that says, "...I'm a Christian." And the skeptic can tie you up into 14 different knots like a little kitty in a ball of yarn. And you can't extricate yourself at all. Why? Because of the fact that you don't know the Word of God. Now, he says here, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Oh, do you have a little sanctuary, a little chapel in your own heart today? Where, when you're riding along in the car, or you're walking down the street, or you're in the shop, or the office, or in the schoolroom, the classroom, there is a little chapel there. There is a little sanctuary there where you can withdraw and where you can sanctify the Lord God in your heart so that those outside will know, my friend, that you belong to Him. And you don't have to mouth it all the time and make yourself obnoxious by the things that you say, making some pious statement. Oh, if we would sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, and that's needed today. The psalmist says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. But today, may I say to you, on Sunday... You may go to your church, but the world is passing you by and headed for the beach, headed for the mountains, headed for the desert, headed for places of amusement, and the whole world is not keeping silence before him. Why? Because we as individuals need to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. This is a tremendous verse. Now, verse 16, "...having a good conscience." that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good manner of life in Christ. In other words, make sure that those who speak evil of you are in error. When I first went into downtown Los Angeles, I met Dr. Jim McGinley in Chicago at the Moody Founders Week conference, and he said to me, how do you like being pastor of that great church? I said, Wonderful, but I said, I found myself in a place I can't really defend myself. I just don't intend to get up every Sunday and explain all the things I've heard, and my business is teaching the Word of God. And I said, none of them are true. And he says, 
Well, aren't you glad they're not true? It'd be bad if they were. Well, may I say to you, friends, that's what Peter is saying here. Have a good conscience that when you hear these rumors about you, it won't bother you because you know it's not true. Verse 17, For it's better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. In other words, if you suffer for Christ's sake, you can rejoice in that. But if you're doing it because you played the fool, that you've gotten into trouble, into sin, then that's a different story altogether. Now we come to verse 18 here, and we have inserted here in the rest of this chapter, Christ's suffering preached by the Spirit in Noah's day. This is a very controversial section. Believe me, Simon Peter really moves us into a corner many times here in his first epistle. Verse 18, "...for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit." It's important for us to see that he became a human being, and it was in his humanity that he died on the cross. He died on the cross, and it was the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. And we will come back to that later on in the next chapter. Verse 19, "...by whom also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison." Now, this has been a misunderstood passage of Scripture. Now, the important word in this entire incident that's recorded is verse 20 and the little word, when. Who at one time were disobedient. Now, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. When did he speak to them? All right. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, in which few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, the spirits of those who were destroyed in the flood were in prison. They had gone into Sheol. They were waiting for judgment. They were lost. But Christ did not go down and preach to him when he died on the cross. He preached through Noah when, once, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah for 120 years. This man Noah preached the Word of God. He saved his family, but no one else. They wouldn't believe him, you see. And that's when the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah. And that's interesting to know that it was the Spirit of Christ who spoke through Noah. And it was in Noah's day. But at the time Christ died, those were in prison. And the thought is that Christ's death meant nothing to them, just as it means nothing to a great many people today, which means they'll come into judgment. Now, verse 21, "...the like figure under which even baptism doth also now save us." Now, what baptism is that? Not water baptism. This is the Spirit's baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is real baptism, And the water baptism is ritual baptism. Now, I believe in water baptism. I believe in immersion, by the way. And I was an ordained Presbyterian minister for many years, but I immerse more people than I've ever sprinkled, I can assure you that. 
But the important thing here is to see that it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what puts you in the body of believers, the like figure under which even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, not just water. That won't put away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brought the work of the Holy Spirit into your life and regenerated you. Now it says, speaking of Christ, who's gone into heaven, he's on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And you and I, little sinners down here, can come to him, accept him and receive him, and join that great company of the redeemed baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ because he's raised from the dead and is at God's right hand today. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.